You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Like everyone else, we're in lockdown on Max's Island, but there are still stories to be told. This episode is a two-parter with storyteller Daryl Brown. Daryl is also the author of the book Raised by Our Childhood Voices. I'm sure you'll enjoy. Here's part one. We've got Daryl Brown as our guest. Daryl's a freelance cinematographer, an author, and a speaker. So welcome to Max's Island, Daryl. Thanks, Tony. It's great to be on Max's Island, yeah. So, Daryl, I introduce all my guests the same way and tell them to tell our listeners about that time when they chose to do something a little bit different in their life, when they might have gone um, against the trend, or they just did something that was unique and has become something very special in their life. So the microphone's yours. Tell our listeners about that time when it might have happened to you. Uh, Well, it's a great question, Tony, because I can actually remember the exact moment when my life changed completely. Um, It was about, it was in 2014. I was asked to spend four days shooting a a documentary um, in Uluru which formerly Ayers Rock, those of you, uh, the Australians will know. And Uluru is a, is, a, is a sacred part of Australian of the Australian landscape. In fact, uh, Uluru itself is uh, one of the most sacred sites in the world. And I was invited to come and spend four days shooting a documentary with a guy called Andrew Harvey, who is a celebrated author and BBC journalist. He's an author of a book called The Hope. And we were shooting a documentary about a guy called Bob Randall, who was one of the traditional owners of the land around Uluru and at the time he was also the Indigenous representative on the world, he was Australia's representative on the World Indigenous Council, that's how high regard he was. I mean this guy was a warrior, he was a beautiful, beautiful man and I was really um, inspired by these two warriors and we spent you know, four days shooting a documentary about about the serpent snake and the story of Uluru, and how it, it wound itself through culture and and the and its um <coughs> and the significance of Uluru to the to that culture. And Bob Randall is one of the few people in in the world who actually is able to live uh, at the base of of Uluru as rock and, and I, I, what I must say about that is that Bob Randall unfortunately passed away, uh, God bless his heart and his soul, beautiful man, he wasn't well at the time of filming the documentary and I was so grateful that I got to, to um, capture his story uh, before he passed away. 
So there I am spending four days with this with two great warriors who really were, um, had a vested interest in, in their culture, in their country, in their people. Um, Andrew Harvey himself uh, wrote a book called The Hope and met with the Dalai Lama and had some very strong and interesting comments around about you know the future of humanity, about our connection to the land. Um, so I spent four days with these guys. And that was actually at... Uluru? It was. So I stayed in the caravan at the, and I could almost pick up a rock and throw it and hit Ayers Rock, hit Uluru. That's how close I was to it. And I was very aware and very grateful of the significance of, of being able to stay on that land. And I, and I felt inspired just being there. Yeah, so for those of us who have been there and have experienced that mystical nature of just being there and there is something very special about being in the presence of the rock. So to have been there for four days non-stop must have been just incredible. It was and in fact um, in my book there's a chapter called The Mystic, The Elder and The Rock and it's the story of what happened while I was there and the effect that it had on me and some of the things that happened on those four days that um, it's the way that the rock affects you to the to your core, and the and the things that happened, and the coincidences, and it's quite an interesting story. But in significance, in relation to the question, what changed my life? What happened was is during the day we were shooting this documentary, and in the evening we'd kind of reflect on what we were filming and and the significance of it. And even though I was with these two great warriors. Andrew was very interested in my thoughts. I was a very passionate father and I was very outspoken about the need for men to be connected to their children. And I also thought that culturally we were paying a heavy price in that men perhaps were over-identifying with their work and less identifying with the need to be present as a father. So back in 2014 and before then, that was probably... There weren't too many people talking about it. it there's a little... You know, there are more people talking about it now, but yeah. certainly back then it was um, very quiet around about boys and, and being um, yeah. guided through life. You're right. There is there's a there's a, a big a massive way of changing. Younger, you, you can see the fathers coming through now, uh, asking for more time. With, you know, with their when their children are first born, more paternity leave, this kind of thing. Um, but in relation to the, the original question, what changed my life? Um, spending four days with these men, Andrew was very Andrew Harvey, who was a very very talented guy, very curious about life, was very curious about my comments about Australian men and fathers. And at the end of the four days, I'd started journaling uh, from when my boys were young, from the year two thousand. I kind of started to notice patterns and things that I was doing as a dad and I started to journal about that. And just kind of writing notes and writing chapters, you know, not giving it much thought. And I'd mentioned this to Andrew during our conversations. And on the, f on the final day, I'm packing for the airport to leave, you know, and I'm just feeling there's a, there's a sense of sadness that it's finished. There's a sense of optimism about what we'd spoken about. And Andrew, who was very British, came running out with his head, his cravat and his cup of tea <laughs> and he comes and his glasses and he comes running out of the house and he sees me packing up and he comes, stands right in front of my face and he looks at me and he says, 
He says, you need to write your book. He said, Australian men need a voice and yours is a good one. And he said, if you write your book, I'll write the foreword for it. And he was asked globally by people to write the foreword for his book. And, and the fact that he offered that to me. And sometimes, you know, it only takes one moment to ch completely change your life. One conversation, I've always said that. And in that moment, he's, this guy's looking at my soul, talking to my soul. And in that moment, it's what the Japanese call satorai, instant awakening. I knew in that moment I was going to write the book. In that moment. And I, and I uh, rang my wife and I said, guess what? I said, I'm going to write my book. And she said, really? And I said, yeah, I've just decided. And then, of course, when you make a decision like that with a sense of doubtlessness, the universe conspires to make it happen. And there's a lot of things that then happened after that, coincidences that showed up that we can talk about that helped uh, that, that, that defining moment that sort of set the wheels in motion. So you hadn't met either of those guys before you got to Uluru? Never, no. So within four days, two people have had an incredible impact on your life and then one moment it's flipped you down a, down a path that yeah. um, has created your book. Yeah. And, and allowed you to, to begin talking about all the things that you believe in. Yeah, well, that's right. So, I mean, it was, you know, I wasn't really thinking what the outcome was going was gonna to be. I just thought, um, you know, you talk, I'm talking about a guy who completely bombed out at school. You know, like my English report was, you know, doesn't try hard enough and, you know, completely bombed out. So here's a guy, you know, well, what do I know about writing a book? So um, all I knew is that if I just write from my heart, if I just tell an authentic story, well, then I can't, you know, well, if that's not good enough, then it doesn't matter. But at least it's everything I am, you know. And that's all I did. So I started... Um, I started writing, putting some chapters together, and then what an interesting thing happened is I got invited to this breakfast, this kind of champagne breakfast by a few sort of entrepreneurs, and and I didn't realise, but the guest speaker that day was a woman called Shannon Bush, and her kind of thing was she helped people self-publish books. Uh, so here I am at a breakfast, and I'm listening to this woman give this talk about self-publishing, and she also was a best-selling author, and she said... I'm here to help people become best-selling authors. And I thought, well, that's me. I want to be a best-selling author. So I meet Shannon, and then at the same time, the guy who's sitting next to me, um, he's what you, he describes himself as an AIDS survivor. And he'd written a book about that. And, and I'm talking to him, and, he's, and I'm telling him about my idea for a book about fatherhood. And he says, well, you, I've got this guy who's a great... Um, editor um, I'll give you his details why don't you contact him and I said sure you know that sounds fine and anyway this guy's name was Christian De Quincey and he was an American professor he teaches at UCLA and he travels the world teaching creative writing and two things came to me. I thought, one, he sounds great, and two, he sounds really expensive. <laughs> you know. Um, so, but the thing is, I'd you know I'd kind of written about eight or nine chapters by then, and had this kind of draft. And anyway, so I, I, I sent this guy Christian. I went to his website, and I really liked what I saw in his website. I liked his his idea about spirituality and consciousness and connection. I really had a good feel for him. So I sent him an email and I said, hey, you know, look, I've heard about you. I've, um, 
I've written, I'm writing this book and would you like to come on board and, and edit it for me? And he, re and he responded almost immediately, he said, what's your book about? And I said, it's about fatherhood and raising boys. And he came back and said, that sounds really interesting. He said, can you send me some stuff? So I said to Christian straight away, mate, look, I'm not a writer. I said, I just tell stories from the heart. I said, that's all. I said, this is just a series of stories. And he said, that sounds perfect. Anyway, so I sent it to him and, and he, he came on board straight away. And, and, he, and you know, if <laughs> anyone who's thinking about writing, my grammar is terrible. My structure was all over the place. But my storytelling was, was inspiring and engaging. And that's the key. That's the part there. So don't worry if you don't know how to write or structure, but if you can engage people in the story, well, that's half the journey. So I'm really interested. You mentioned that you had began writing journals from when your boys were young. So how important was that for you to have that reference material to go back to with regard to storytelling? It's interesting that I was journaling. People said to me, what were you journaling about? And this is, this is the honest truth. I'm a very driven, passionate guy. I'm a cinematographer I've, or I've lived a big life. I've always prioritised what I've done. When I, I became a father at the age of 35, one thing I was very grateful for is that I understood the importance of being a dad and I, understand, and I understood that importance required quality time. So, and I've spoke about this in my book, so there were some things that I couldn't give up and some things I could. So I, I couldn't give up my ability to create an income because that's part of being a provider. That's what, as men, we, need, we do. And, of course, those duties are split between men and women now. It's a different world. But certainly I was the sole provider in, in our relationship, Jules and I. Um, but what could I give up? I could give up my Friday nights with the boys. I could give up my golf. I was a member at Sun City Golf Club. I was a rescue underwater scuba diver. Um, there was a lot of things that I could put to side and give all my time to being with my boys. So with this, without a word of a lie, I would say from the age, from the time my boys were born to the time they were about 10 years old, I would probably spend 300 evenings, out of 365 days a year, I would spend close to 300 with my boys in the evenings. Friday nights, Saturday nights, whatever. I, but I loved it. I couldn't get enough of it. I knew how important it was. There wasn't a single time on a Saturday afternoon I was at the park with my boys thinking, gee, I wish I was playing golf today or whatever. Now, that's not a judgment on anyone else. It's just, it's just a fact about what I thought was important. The reason I started journaling is, was, was this, is that every evening I'd come home, I'd grab my boys, we'd go on the bikes, and I'd always say, let's go on, a, on an adventure. I would never say, let's ride to the park, let's do this. I would always want to captivate them into the idea that life's an adventure. I'd put the boys on their bikes as soon as they were old enough. Jules was always a little bit concerned, but as the dad, I pushed the boundaries, and as Jules is the nurturer, she would try and bring them back, and that was always that dance. I wanted them to take risks. But they were very, um, you know, they were up and riding their bikes. We'd go on an adventure, and then we would spend the afternoon at the park, and we'd do stuff together, and 90% of the time I'd be down there, and there'd be other kids there with their mums. And I, and I remember one day coming back saying to Jules, you know, 
I said, where have, I remember this very clearly. I came home and I said, I wonder of all that where, where have all the fathers gone? And I was gonna, that was actually going to be the title for my book for a while there. Where have all the fathers gone? And I kind of used to justify it and say, well, look, look, they're, they're doing a good job. They're all working. But I thought, well, they couldn't all be working. And then there's FIFO and then there's, you know, and I thought, do dads really understand the, this, how important this is to spend time with their kids and to make time? So I started journaling about why I thought that was important. And I tried not to judge men around it. I just tried to come from a place of... I think this is important and this is why I do it. Maybe I could share these ideas. So you use that, those, that, that journaling information, that your thoughts at the time, your observations at the time, and then exactly. built some stories around that or, some st or did you overlay stories over that? I just, at the time, um, yeah, it's an interesting question. So I've done a lot of personal development training over the years, 20 years of it. I've trained with Tony Robbins, I've trained with in NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. I became a Master Practitioner and a, an Associate Trainer. I understood the power of language. I was very curious about early brain development, child development. I understood the development of the brain in, 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 um, uh, you know, in, during pregnancy. Um, and I was, so I then I, I read a lot about it. So I was very interested in the in the in the, how a child's brain grows in the in the neurological development, the wiring of a child, how important those voices are in their early years. So I had a lot of understanding of that, um, and at the same time, um, I just kind of understood how important it was to create an environment that was life affirming for the boys, for, for our two boys, you know, which just meant a lot of, it, which really meant working on my relationship with, with Jules, with my partner, which, was, which wasn't perfect. You know, we had good and bad days like everyone does and I, every now and then I'd make some pretty poor choices. I mean, I'm not a perfect father. I wouldn't know what that would even look like. But I understood the importance of creating an environment that was life-affirming uh, for the kids. So I, had a, so I did do a lot of study around it but, you know, most of it's common sense, you know, you don't have to read a single book to know that kids need a, a loving, you know, nurturing, they need boundaries, you know, they need boundaries, they need good conversation. Um, so I just started writing about things that, um, that I guess had, would bring meaning and value to parents. Um, and, and one thing I want to say about that is this, is, because um, I do a lot of work in men's work, is that I, I'm not... I would never um, advise people giving... I'm always wary of giving dads advice on how to raise their kids. I think that's a really dangerous path. Unless, unless I'm a qualified psychologist, you know, I mean, I'm not. I'm just a guy who loves being a dad. So I always prefer to tell a story. I'm a storyteller. So what I did is, if, if my book is just simply a series of stories. That's all it is. Because the thing about this is, Blokes don't want to be told how to raise their kids, but men will find each other in a story. They always have done. And the indigenous cultures understood the wisdom of that. You, you can put a lot of meaningful messages in a story, and everyone will filter a story differently depending on their model of the world, depending on how they've been brought up, depending on their relationship with their dad. So all I did is I just, I really wanted to write my book as a, as a series of stories of hey, this is the time that I built a treehouse with my boys and this is the, the time that, um, you know, that, I, that I decided that I wasn't going to let my boys have too much screen time and this is, is kind of how I did it. So everything's an invitation. It's, you know, this is what I did, 
it, it might not work for you. I'm not telling you to do it, but these are some good ideas that worked for me. That's really interesting because that's what Max's Island is all about, is the opportunity for people to, to tell a story, not their life story, but a particular story that has meaning. And it's that meaning that always comes through. It's the, it's the, the, the feeling that we get from listening to somebody tell their story because that story is unique to them mm. it's their truth it's what they believe and we get meaning out of that because it's so you're so invested in it mm. so um, i can really understand how uh, that approach of being a book of stories to give insights to give wisdom mm. that, that 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 can be drawn out of it by by the reader Mm. And, and uh, I think those sort of books are far more effective than sort of an instructional ABC yeah. type of book. It, it's funny because I hadn't looked at the book for a few years and I picked it up the other day and I was reading it and I actually said to Jules, you know, I, there are some parts of when I read the book where I cringe, where, I, where I even now I think, God, was I, am I preaching to guys here? Am I really putting myself up on a pedestal? Like even... Even after I finished writing the book, I, the, the, the manuscript I read, I said to Jules, let's go through it and take my ego out of this because I just think I'm, I don't want to be preaching to people. But even if I, as I read it now, I kind of cringe a few times. I think, oh, God, I wish I didn't say that. So it's funny, you know, when you look back in hindsight and still think, yeah, I probably could have been a bit more humble, you know, when I said those parts. But anyway...
Every sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the sky. Completely alone, no emails or phone, and nothing, nothing he needed to do. Sometimes it's